Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Deeper Conversation, a podcast for Jewish women. This is Yochaved. Thank you so much for joining me in our second installment of Extraordinary Jewish Women in History. Today's episode is going to be about Dona Gracia Nasi. Um, she was a woman who lived through one of the most tumultuous times in Jewish history and was responsible for saving countless numbers of Jews from the Spanish Inquisition. And I'm really excited to get into her story today. But before I do that, I want to thank my anonymous sponsor. I have a really wonderful sponsor, and I'm really sorry that she's anonymous, but she asked to be. But she sponsored it in honor of my mother, who's not anonymous, and in honor of my mother's birthday. And this is really exciting to me. So first of all, I could publicly say happy birthday to my mom. Um, and I can also publicly thank my mother because this whole series of Jewish women really started with my mother, the first extraordinary Jewish woman that I interviewed. And now I get to talk about Jewish women throughout history. So happy birthday to my mother. Thank you so much to my anonymous sponsor. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can reach me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. You can also go onto the website maverickpodcasting.com and click on my page. And you can either donate, sponsor there, or you could do something else, which we just set up, which is if you want to do a monthly donation, $5 even, if you think this podcast is something that you get value from and you want to support it, you can just click monthly donation, $5, um, I, I think is a great way to just support the podcast and keep it going. Anyways, you could use that email also just to reach out to me, ask me questions, give me feedback. I'd love to hear from you. A deeper conversation, 120 at gmail.com. So now let's get into talking about Dona Gracia Nasi. And when I had this idea to do this series on extraordinary Jewish women, I thought it would be really nice to find Jewish women, maybe biblical or in history, who are not maybe as well known. The problem is, is that they're not as well known for a reason, because there's not that information out there on them. And I was talking to, I actually had this conversation with a few people. I said, you know, who is there in history that people know about besides Dona Gracia Nasi? And a few people said to me, who is that? And I thought, okay. So first of all, obviously, they were not in Mrs. Goldstein's 11th grade Jewish history class. Otherwise, they would know who that is. But second of all, it's such a tragedy that more people don't know about her because she was such an extraordinary Jewish woman. And I want to just give a little bit of background about setting up the time and the place. Um, and also just to talk for a second about my sources, because that's really important when we talk about history. My primary source, not my primary source, my main source, primary source means something very specific in history. Um, the main source that I use for this um, talk about Dona Gracia Nasi is the book by Cecil Roth. Um, so that is a great source if anybody wants to read the book. It is a little academic, but it's amazing and really gives a flavor for the time and the politics of what was going on. I also listened to a lot of lectures by Dr. Henry Abramson and anybody who's interested at all in Jewish history, I would suggest that you YouTube his name. He's really a historian. Everything is just so um, research. So, I mean, he's a professor, so it's just he, a really incredible source of information on Jewish history. Um, and of course, Rabbi Beryl Wine. I, I have been listening to Rabbi Wine since I was in high school. Somebody gave my brother for his bar mitzvah the cassette tapes of the Jewish history series from, I guess it was the Chorban till medieval times. I think that's what it was. Um, my brother did not really listen to them so much, but I did. And I love history, and I'm really excited to get into this. So speaking of the history of the time of the Spanish Inquisition, so the first thing that everybody, I think, needs to know about the Inquisition is that the Inquisition itself was not started to persecute Jews. It was started to root out heretics for the church, which eventually the Jews became part of that group, and then was used as a tool to either extract money from Jews, to... Um, 
you know, persecute Jews just sort of wholesale. But there was a series of events that sort of led up to the date that many of you may know, which is 1492, when the Jews were expelled from Spain. But things were really going on for several hundred years before then, from the time that the Christians took over Spain from the Muslims. Under Muslim rule, we have what's known as the golden age of Spanish Jewry. Jews were had much more freedoms under the Muslims at the time. They were much more, I guess, progressive um, than the Christians. And as the Christians slowly took over Spain, so things started to get a little trickier for the Jews then. And there is that uh, theological conflict that goes on between the Jews and the Christians who were very, very from at the time. And over the course of the 14th century, so in the 1300s, there was a series of debates between the church and different um, rabbis, very often the person debating on the Christian side was an apostate Jew, was a Jew that was, you know, had converted to Christianity, so therefore they had some inside information. These debates were often rigged. They were, they were show, they were really more entertainment than anything else. Um, and they resulted in a lot of tragedies for the Jews. I mean, just really terrible things. And there was a series of um, pogroms resulting from one of these debates in the year 1391. And thousands and thousands of Jews were forcibly converted. Now, these Jews who were forcibly converted in the 1390s, or, uh, Dr. Abramson says maybe tens of thousands of Jews, really tried to maintain their Jewish identity and tried to marry amongst themselves, and they tried to live like privately as Jews um, while publicly going to mass and, mass and publicly being Christian. And what what happened, though, from this time on, so from 1391 till 1492, so over the course of 100 years, you had this active crackdown of the church who wanted to try to convert the Jews to Christianity and also to root out the heretics, meaning to find the Jews who were not, um, to find the Jews who were pretending to be Christian, but actually were Judaizers. Um, and this was actually something that was a, it was like a, Cecil Roth describes it as like a sword lying in the middle of somebody's living room. So if one family member was mad at another family member, they can always accuse them of Judaizing and then take their money, take their property. Um, you know, and this actually happened in Dona Gracia's own family, as we'll discuss later on. So the Jews in Spain now, you have three groups of Jews. You have Jews who are openly living as Jews with lots of difficulties, restrictions on commerce on what they can do professionally, all sorts of things. You have a group of Jews who are conversos. They called the, the Christians called the Moranos, which means pig. So we don't really use that term anymore. We prefer the term conversos, or sometimes you'll see them referred to as anusim, forced converts, crypto Jews. Um, but you had a group of these crypto Jews who really tried their hardest to stay faithful to Judaism, to Torah. Um, and then you had the group of Jews who converted, who really meant it, who really wanted to blend into Christian society, who considered themselves to be Christian. And so you have this very, I think, unique in Jewish history dynamic going on in Spain between these three groups. And it was really a very, very tragic time. So there was pogroms and there was all sorts of um, proselytizing from the Christian church, and the Jews really were in a state of despair. And because those that initial group of Jews had converted forcibly in the 1390s, even though they really, that group by and large, tried to hold on to their Jewish identity, it did sort of break the stigma. So then later on, as the 1400s got underway, it wasn't like an unheard of thing 
that Jews would convert to Christianity. Because like I said, the stigma was broken and people who wanted to do so for expediency, who wanted to just become Christian um, because all opportunities would be open to them, were able to do so a little, a lot more easily. But you also had, again, this like constant suspicion of these Christians by other conversos and of course by the Christian church, which created a completely untenable situation. Finally, the Inquisition, which was started by Ferdinand and Isabella, I wouldn't say it was started by them, but they asked the Pope for permission to start it to root out the heretics. You probably know the name uh, Torquemada, who was the head inquisitor. At a certain point, he admitted that he was he was unable to um, totally rid Spain of the Jewish problem and advised Ferdinand and Isabella to expel the Jews from Spain. And this is what happened in 1492. So in 1492, approximately, and I just want to give you a sense of the numbers just so that you can sort of have an idea. In 1491, you have about, and I'm using Dr. Abramson's numbers here, seven to nine million people living in what we would call Spain or Spaniards. Of those uh, seven to nine million Spaniards, you have approximately about 200,000 Jews, 225,000 conversos. So half a million Jews, half of which are living as Jews, half of which are conversos. Um, in Portugal, you have one, in, one to one and a half million people, about 10 to 20,000 of those are Jews. So a lot smaller. Um, but what happened was, was that now these 225,000 people who are living as Jews now have to leave Spain in a hurry. And in fact, probably one of the most famous of the Jews was um, Don Isaac Abarbanel. His name will come up a little bit later. He was the second most powerful Jew in the court, and he um, rejected the offer for Ferdinand and Isabel to stay on. He refused to convert. And they said, okay, so everybody else has to leave, but you could stay here and live as a Jew, which he did not want to do. And his first excuse was, well, I need a minion. So they said, okay, pick a minion. They could stay, live as Jews, and you could stay here because they really, he was so valuable to them that um, they wanted him to stay. And he said, no, thank you. And he wound up finding his way to Italy and wrote most of the commentary that he wrote on the Mepharshim actually while um, living in Italy. So he was one of the more famous, um, one of the more famous people in that time who wound up having to leave Spain in the expulsion of 1492. So the closest place to go was Portugal. And Portugal wasn't as rapidly religious. The king, King Manuel, really wanted the Jews to come in for financial reasons. They were very skilled. They were very good at languages. They also had, Jews had networks, right? You know, like even now, if you go to another city, you just find a from Jew and you can figure out how to negotiate in that community. And so it was like that then. So for trade and for all sorts of things, Jews were really a valuable economic asset to most um, to most countries and a wise king would take advantage of that and want that as King Manuel did. So originally what happened was, was that they came in on visas for eight months to stay in Portugal. Now, like I said, there was like say 100,000 people trying to get into Portugal in 1492. So of the 200,000 or so Jews, about half of them tried to get into Portugal. And so some of them had this, had to pay a certain um, amount of money. They could stay for eight months till they figured out where to go. There, of those 100,000 people, there were 600 families who were able to pay. I have no idea what the conversion is, but 100 cruzados. And they were able to settle throughout Portugal, those 600 families. Um, what happened was, was that King Manuel 
originally said, hey, this is great. Let me take on, you know, like Spain's loss is my gain kind of thing. This is an incredible financial asset. But then what happened was, was he wanted to marry the daughter of Ferdinand Isabella, also named Isabella. She was even more fanatically religious than her parents. And this was a very tempting match because even though King Manuel wasn't like religiously against the Jews, um, there was a certain amount of expediency to getting rid of the Jews because Isabella said that she wouldn't marry him if he still had Jews in his kingdom. And the idea of uniting the Iberian Peninsula was just too tempting to turn down. So he was like a little bit in a quandary what to do. Do I keep the Jews? It's good for my country. Do I get rid of the Jews and marry Isabella? And he had this fabulous idea, and I obviously say that with air quotes and really tragic for so many Jews, of forcibly converting the children. And he um, made a proclamation. Um, it was on March 9th, 1497, that every, ch- every child, every Jewish child between the ages of four and 14 need to present themselves on the following Sunday to be forcibly baptized. And apparently it was a scene of incredible horror with parents strangling their kids and weeping and crying and just a, a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, in his his intention was that if we forcibly convert the children, we'll eventually get the parents to come along with the children. So you had in Portugal now living all these converted Jews or conversos, Jews who are living secretly as Jews. And of course, you have the group of Jews who are uh, just living as Christians and really meant it and believed it. Dona Gracia's family was a family of conversos, a family that were forced converts probably at this time when Jews were forcibly converted by the Portuguese. Um, but they were a group of, they were a family that felt themselves to be very, very strongly Jewish and wanted to live openly as Jews, which ultimately Dona Gracia was able to renounce Christianity and live openly as a Jew, but it, it took a while for her to get there. But she was born into this Portuguese family of conversos and probably I would say born around, um, the estimates were that she was born around 1508 because she got married in 1528 and uh, the approximate age for her to get married would probably have been around 18 years old. Now we call her Dona Gracia Nasi because that's actually, I guess, her maiden name. Last names were a little bit more fluid in Spain than they were they are now. Nasi was the name of her family. So her Christian name was Beatrice de Luna. Very often, conversos would take on the last name of the Christian who had converted them. Uh, Nasi probably indicates the fact that her family was very important. Nasi would indicate that there was maybe a courtu in the background of the family somewhere. Um, and Beatrice was her Christian name. Gracia was her Hebrew name. It's a derivative of the name Hannah. And Gracia was what she was called when she was with her family. So she married uh, Francisco Mendez, who was quite a bit older than her. And he was referred to in documents as Rabbi Anus, which seems to indicate that he had a lot of Jewish scholarship. He was a rabbi maybe before his family was forcibly converted. The original Mendez family name was Benvenista. That was their Jewish name. And then they took on the name Mendez. Um, So she married Francisco at the age of 18 and was married for eight years before she became a widow. She had one daughter, 
her Hebrew name, the Hebrew name of her daughter was Raina, um, and her Christian name was Brianda, but they called her at home, of course, Raina by the Hebrew name. So she had the one daughter. And then at the age of 26, she was left a widow. Now, the Mendez family was very wealthy. They were a banking house. And when we say banking, we don't mean banking the way we think of it now, because there wasn't currency. They were more like merchants, spice merchants, and would trade those spices um, throughout and developed an incredible network of um, shipping and of um, like almost like an international an international spice I don't know conglomerate I don't know what you would call it but they had agents in every city in Europe and when Francisco died he left the business half to his brother Diogo and half to his wife and she was very involved in the business so the question is of course how involved was she before her husband died it would seem that she probably was involved which is why he left when he died he left her in charge of the business as opposed to leaving it all to his brother to act out in her name. And she worked very closely with her brother-in-law in business matters. And they grew the they grew the business together to ultimately become one of the wealthiest fortunes in all of Europe. Now, he was living, the brother, Diogo, was living in Antwerp. Francisco had sent his brother to open up a branch of the family business in Antwerp, which was at the time becoming a very um, important trade city, especially for spices. And spices in the ancient world were very important for preserving food, not just for, you know, just adding flavor, but they were almost like a necessary thing that people needed because there was no refrigeration. So um, he lived in Antwerp, and Antwerp was a place where people can live a little bit, or the the conversos could live a little bit more openly as Jews. They were a little bit more relaxed about it. It was kind of like an open secret that everybody knew. There was a place called Jew Street that everybody knew about where it was a bunch of converso families. And so ultimately, uh, Gracia wanted to make her way there so she could live there and also be involved in the business. Now, if we think about what this business was, it was an international business. They had agents in every city. They had a fleet of ships. And what she did was she used this network to help Jewish refugees get out of Christian Europe. Jews wanted to get out of Christian Europe, obviously fleeing the Inquisition. Ultimately, the goal for many Jews was Turkey. Turkey was uh, two things. Turkey was, first of all, still under Muslim control, which, like we said earlier, was more progressive and Jews could live openly there. Um, It was also the doorway to Israel and then called Palestine. And that was really a goal. And you had in this time period the uh, resurgence of certainly in Sfat, the Kabbalists there, a resurgence of the Jewish community very briefly, and many Jews were trying to get there. But if you were a Christian, you couldn't leave Christian Europe, and you certainly couldn't leave with any of your money. So they created this network of refugees on all their ships that were legitimately doing business, and they had agents that would board each ship anytime a ship, let's say, put in in London. They had a, a Dona Gracia had an agent there that would get on and warn whatever Moranos were there, whether or not it was safe to disembark. And they would try to help them exchange their money. They would try to help them get as much as their property out. And they created a network really saving Jews from the Inquisition. It, I mean, who knows how many thousands and thousands of Jews they were able to save. And she, um, so in about 1536, this is when she was... Um, she was widowed. She ultimately made her way to Antwerp with her daughter and her little sister, whose name is very confusing. Her name was also Brianda. Um, And Brianda eventually wound up marrying Diogo. Diogo is the brother. So you have two sisters marrying two brothers, but the sister um, did not have the same talents as her older sister, Gracia. 
um, and not necessarily as connected to Judaism. Dona Gracia really seems to be the head of the family, and she was the one who really was very involved in these efforts with her brother-in-law's help to save all these thousands of Jews from the Inquisition via their network of merchant ships. Now, they could have maybe themselves gone to someplace where they could live openly as Jews. And it seems to be from Cecil Roth's book that they asked Ashila about whether or not they should do so, because while they were in Antwerp, they really tried to live as Jewishly as possible, meaning they tried not to eat any forbidden food. They tried to keep Shabbos. They tried not to eat on Yom Kippur. They had to go to Mass occasionally. They were still publicly living as Christians. And it seems like the Shiloh that they asked and the response that they got was that they were so important and doing such important work for saving all these Jews that they should stay where they were and continue to live as Christians so that they could facilitate um, the work that they were doing. Now, ultimately, um, Dona Grassi is going to leave Antwerp, but for now, this was the next step on their journey towards where they were going to be, or she was going to be able to live openly as a Jew and sort of really come into herself as she gets older. But she is extremely involved. She has incredible business acumen, and she seems to know exactly when to stand strong and when to kind of grease the wheels and bribe the people that needed to be bribed so she could continue on her incredibly holy work of saving this Jew, as many Jews as possible from the Inquisition. So what I think I'm going to do is we're going to leave it here for now. Um, over the course of this week, I'm going to continue to post installments. And I think that that's how I'm going to um, do this series on Dona Grassi. It's a lot of information and I am getting a little bit in the weeds with the history, but I think it's so important for us to understand the time that she is living in. First of all, a time when women weren't really in business, let's just put it that way. Um, you had a few very famous and prominent women, most notably Queen Elizabeth I. But as a general rule, women did not have a lot of um, public positions, which is why, unfortunately, there's you know a lack of information about women during this time period. Um, but you had a, a woman who was able to really changed the course of Jewish history. And in fact, she, I don't know anybody else in history besides Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Hanasi, who has this. She had a nickname, La Senora, and that's what everybody called her. So if you said La Senora in those days, you were talking about Dona Gracia. Rebbe, who famously collated the Mishnah, was known as Rebbe, my teacher. And if you say Rebbe, everybody knew who you were talking about. You were only referring to Rebbe Huda Hanasi. And if you said La Senora, you were only referring to Dona Gracia Hanasi. That's how famous she got. That's how beloved she was. Um, everybody, she was the benefactress of the time for the Jews. Um, anyway, so we'll pick this up. Hopefully in uh, a few days, I'll be able to post the next installment. Thank you all so much for listening. Please send me feedback if you like these historical type of podcasts where we explore Jewish women, because I really want to know your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to posting part two of Dona Gracia in the next few days.